the easiest thing to do is open your door. Thank you, Keith and Janie. Some of you guys saw Keith and Janie on your way in. They greeted you at the door. Uh, what an awesome story. It's about 18 months ago, I think, that uh, Keith came to me and said, we don't really know what to do, but we feel like we're supposed to do something. And, uh, and at first we thought, was we kind of thought and prayed and talked about it, like maybe it's a connect group, maybe it's something we do where we... Uh, you know, launch a Bible study and do a church activity or church program, this and that. And as the more we prayed about it and, and thought through it, and we had a few phone conversations, it just became clear that what they needed to do was just invite people into their home and uh, to see their neighbors, given their neighbors an opportunity uh, to see Jesus in them. And I tell you what, I am so glad, you, you may never hear a pastor say this, I'm so glad we didn't start a Bible study. I'm so glad we didn't launch a church program. Because what's happened over the last year in their home, just seeing people come together, their neighbors come together, is their neighbors have all seen a picture of Jesus, a clear, intimate picture of Jesus uh, through them. So thank you, Keith and Janie, for your testimony. Uh, your story may not be like Keith and Janie's. Uh, you may not be inspired to do the same thing that Keith and Janie have done. They may not always do exactly things the way they have done, but that, what he said about being obedient is what the call of Jesus is. This is not a, a, a program that we want to just kind of pull out of thin air, the neighborhood initiative. It's our focus for 2024. So as a new year starts and you're thinking, you know, not just what am I going to do with my financial goals or my career goals or whatever goals, your educational goals that you might be setting. I want to challenge you to actually set in front of yourself an opportunity to focus on spiritual growth this year in particular growing as a neighbor to others to love other people the way Jesus loves them and this is the call this is where we're heading for this year I'm gonna talk a little bit more about it on the back side of the sermon I'm even going to give you an opportunity uh, as God stirs in your heart to make a commitment to grow in that way this year uh, but this is our focus for the year uh, it's on becoming neighbors it's not about reaching our neighborhoods uh, it's not about adding numbers We've said before, and we'll say it again, that, that Moberly is, is, you're not here to help Moberly grow. Moberly is here to help you grow. And so what we want to do is see God do something in you to make you look more like Jesus and to, that that would bear fruit in your life. And so this is where we're heading this year in 2024. Uh, you may be inspired this year to do something completely different and unique, something nobody's ever done before, uh, to become a neighbor to someone else. Uh, maybe it's something nothing like what Keith and Janie did. Maybe they're maybe God changes what they do this year. We don't know, but we're going to be obedient. That's the call. Where does a church come up with a focus like this, like the neighbor initiative? How do we... Why do, why do we even talk about this? It's something we just pull out of thin air, like we think it's cool. Uh, I heard a story about uh, a group of churches in Colorado in the Denver metro area that invited their mayor of their local community into a meeting where they uh, said, what are the needs in our community? How can we meet the needs? And they spent hours with their local mayor, all these pastors and church leaders, talking about poverty and, uh, and homelessness and, and hunger and all the things in communities that every community faces that churches should and could be a part of rectifying and then after hours the mayor says you know I think it all boils down to this I think it's just if we could just teach the people in our community to be neighbors to one another good neighbors we would see all this change and the pastor who kind of organized the event said can I just be the first one to admit I'm kind of embarrassed 
that it took the mayor of our community coming in to tell all these church leaders what Jesus has already told us. We didn't pull this out of thin air. It doesn't just sound cool to us. This is what Jesus says is most important, right next door to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. In fact, an expert in the law came along in Matthew 22 and asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? What's the greatest commandment? What he's asking Jesus to do is kind of the impossible. He's saying, Jesus, if you could boil the whole Bible down, all of our Old Testament Jewish scriptures into one sentence, what would it be? And Jesus' response was that. It's a, it's a quote from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second command is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is nothing we can do in this life to look more like Jesus than to love God and love our neighbor. This is what the Christian life looks like. When you ask the question, what does it look like uh, to be a Christian? What should my life look like? You ought to ask yourself these two questions. Am I loving God with everything I am? And am I loving my neighbor in the same way God has loved me? This is not the only time this came up in Jesus' life. Luke chapter 10, it comes up a different time. You might actually want to open your Bible up to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at it together this morning. Uh, another expert in the law, a little bit different. He's not a, necessarily a religious leader. He's probably more like a lawyer. Uh, asks Jesus a different question. He says to Jesus, uh, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Thinking Jesus is a rabbi, he's a teacher, surely he's got an answer. Uh, and I kind of actually want to see what his answer is because this lawyer uh, thought I might have an opportunity to prove myself, you know, as a little smarter than Jesus uh, if I can quote the Old Testament better than him. Uh, or maybe I can be a little more critical of Jesus and who he is as he gains popularity. So he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, look what happens with me at uh, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? And I love this because Jesus turns him back. He gives him, he tees him up. He sets him up like, hey, you're, you're a lawyer. You're an expert in the religious law. What, what do you say? How do you read it? As if there is an interpretive element here. And in verse 27, he answers, of course, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now in Matthew 22, Jesus had said these same words. And in fact, he added the phrase, all the law and all the prophets depend on these things. The entire Old Testament depends on these things. And so Jesus says to him in verse 28, you've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. So the religious expert, he's not a pastor, he's not a priest, but he's a religious expert. He's what we think of as a lawyer. He asks this question to test Jesus. He's not necessarily curious. He's probably a little more cynical when he asks Jesus this question. He's not asking about how can I be saved and get into the kingdom of God and follow Jesus with my life. He's asking for a maybe more selfish reason. What does it take to inherit, inherit eternal life? What must I do? And in his question, before Jesus says anything, we see a similar 
fatal spiritual flaw that we often make. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the law, which this guy was an expert, is like a ruler, like a measuring stick. In fact, that word law kind of translates to that, that there's a, there's a, a certain uh, goal that we have to measure up to. So it's like a measure, or measuring tape. Imagine this. Uh, the measuring tape I have in my garage is 25 feet long. If I had my measuring tape and I stretched it up 25 feet tall uh, all the way to the end, up and down, right next to me, you would recognize pretty quickly that I'm just barely six foot. I don't measure up to the full length of that measuring tape. Well, that's what the law is supposed to show us, right? But what if I could measure up? What would it take for me to measure up? Uh, can I grow a little bit? Can I eat more food? And usually we grow different directions when we just do all that, right? So I'm not necessarily helping me, right? Uh, can, I can lift my hands up like I'm doing right now, but that's maybe eight feet. And, you know, I can't sustain that, especially forever. Uh, I could do like what I did as a kid when I would go into a roller coaster line and you get up to the sign that says, must be this tall to ride. And I would stand up and I'd kind of do a tippy toe. I really want to get on this roller coaster and haven't hit my growth spurt yet, so I don't think I'm going to get to. But I could try that. It's just not going to work. I'm not going to measure up. This is what the law is for. It's the point of the law is to help us recognize that we will never measure up. So when the lawyer asks this question, what he gets is a realization. I'm not going to measure up. There's nothing I can do completely and fully to complete the law, which is why Jesus turns the question back on him. He wants this lawyer to recognize. And so he, as he repeats the greatest commandment, the one Jesus had said also is the greatest, uh, we see that he's recognizing, I'm not going to measure up. But Jesus says, if you can do it, you should. If you can measure up, if you can complete the law, that's how you get eternal life, right? Eternal life depends on your ability to be perfect, to fully measure up. But there's something inside of us, right, just like the lawyer, that longs for life beyond this life. That we want to know, what does it take? How can we live? How can we have a bigger story? How can we be a part of something eternal? The Bible says that eternity is written on our hearts. There's something in us, in all of us, that longs for this eternal life. Uh, so our first inclination is to ask the same question. What must I do? What do I have to do to get there? And then we realize that there's no way for us to be perfect, that it's completely impossible for us to measure up. We ask, our, we ask ourselves the next logical question, which is, okay, so how much is enough? Like if nobody can measure up, like maybe there's a point where God says, but if you can just get to this level, then you're good. Like if you can get, let's just say, to... 12 and a half feet on our tape measure of 25 feet, you're over halfway, like the good in your life outweighs the bad, then at that point, you know what, that's enough. Like we're going, how much is enough? What's the bare minimum that I can get away with to ensure that I have eternal life with God? And we ask, well, is it a religious duty? Is there something I can do? Is there some way that I'm supposed to live? Do I need to cut that out of my life, but, you know, start going to church and stop doing whatever it is? And we try to do all these weights and measures to determine the eternal destiny of our lives. Jesus is saying, you, you'll never measure up. 
the, this expert in the law, this lawyer, asks the very similar question of exactly what should I do? What boxes do I need to check off to ensure eternal life? In verse 29, he says this, attempting to justify himself, he asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus thinks this is an interesting question. Who is my neighbor? What's the minimum that I have to do? And, and Jesus is going to address it. The, the implication, though, of asking the question is that the, the lawyer understands what a neighbor is. The word neighbor here in the Greek translates literally to just nearby. It's even then, thousands of years ago, used to describe people who lived near you. But it seems like the way he asks it, who is my neighbor, is like he already knows that it's something bigger than just the person who lives next door or the household next door to me. So it's like he's asking, but what is the requirement? Like, Jesus, if you could just define it with your expertise in the law uh, as, as a rabbi, as a Jewish teacher, you know, we know we're not going to measure all the way up, but if you could say what I am supposed to do, then I can look and try my hardest to do that. What would you say, Jesus? So Jesus takes up this question, and he illustrates his answer with a story. So look with me in chapter 10, starting in verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going that way down the same road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Jesus, talking to the lawyer, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Well, the one who showed mercy to him, he said. And Jesus told him, go and do the same. Now, you may have heard this story before, but I just want to recap a few pieces of it and kind of give us where I think Jesus wants to lead us this year in our own spiritual development as we grow to look more like him. What's Jesus doing with this story? And we know he's telling the story, and we could probably find some things implied within the story, but what is Jesus doing with this story? Well, the key verse is in verse 36. I don't know if you noticed or not, but Jesus says, uh, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? But that's not what the lawyer was asking, was it? Did you catch that? The lawyer said, who is my neighbor? Jesus, can you help me identify just the people that I'm supposed to be responsible for? And then maybe I can just accomplish getting that done, right? 
But Jesus turns it around. Uh, the lawyer wanted to know what he must do to get into the kingdom of God. Who's my neighbor? Jesus answered by showing him what the kingdom of God does in a person, which is becoming a neighbor to those around you. Jesus is redefining uh, for us what a life of faith, what life in God's kingdom looks like. He's turning religion upside down. He's saying life with God is being transformed from the inside out. The relationship with God can't be attained by what you do, only by what Jesus has done. So life in God's kingdom, therefore, cannot be achieved. It must only be received by faith, meaning God's kingdom is no longer something outside that we're trying to get into, but rather God's kingdom is something he puts inside of us that we now need to live out. This is what Jesus is doing with the story of what we know as the Good Samaritan. Now in Jesus' story, he gives two examples of what it doesn't look like to live in the kingdom of God. And it's interesting, the people he shows us as examples that are negative. He gives two examples, what it looks like, in fact, even to be a physical neighbor, to be nearby someone, yet to be disobedient to God and his definition of what it means to be a neighbor. So these two men, the first two men, the priest and the Levite uh, are not only probably fellow Jews with this person who's fallen into the hands of robbers, uh, you'd think they would have pity on their countrymen, right? If this is person in the story is, is a Jew, which is likely, that they would have pity on someone who is like them, who's in their tribe, uh, who's in their country. That that's at least a definition of neighbor that ought to apply, right? It may not be the person that lives next door, but someone like me I ought to extend some kindness and grace to, yet they walk by on the other side. They ignore the man who's in grave need. So what's happening here? Jesus is taking both of these negative examples and giving us religious people as the negative. Now this is kind of shocking, probably not only to us, but to them, because especially this lawyer, would have held religious people like priests and Levites in high regard. Uh, these would have been people who would have been responsible for uh, helping the sacrifice happen in the temple in Jerusalem. The daily and regular sacrifices to uh, atone for the sins of the people, to restore right relationship to God. Uh, these were the, the mediators between the people and God, and here they are ignoring a person in need. Now, some have said uh, that the reason, well, the reason the, the Levite and the priest, the, the guy was half dead. The reason they couldn't go over there is because it would have compromised their ceremonial cleanliness, that if they approached this man and reached out and touched him and say he actually was dead the way he appeared, that it would have compromised their cleanliness. They would have been unable to perform the sacrifices for the people uh, without being going through a big process of consecration. Their duty would have been thwarted. However, there's a little clue here in the text that makes us think that that might not be the case. The clue is this. It says that they're heading from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, they're moving away from Jerusalem. And we know from some first century writings that priests, Levites in this region, when they would go to Jerusalem to perform their priestly and Levitical duties, that they would travel in groups. It was a group effort, but once their duty was finished, they would leave on their own and going back to their homes 
individually. And here we find them alone, moving away from Jerusalem, meaning their duty was already done. They'd already performed their religious duty. Here they are just walking by with no compassion for this man who's on the side of the road. This is what's happening here. Maybe Jesus is showing us that there are people, especially religious people, who can perform religious duties, even to the extent of representing sinful people to a holy God, like a priest and a Levite who then, as soon as they walk out of that duty, will reject representing a merciful God to a person in need. And the two don't jive. Jesus is saying you can't have it both ways. You can't perform your religious duties and expect that that covers over your whole life. You can't look like a Christian and not live like Christ. This is an expectation for life in the kingdom of God that Jesus illustrates through this story. And there are people all over East Texas in churches right now as we sit performing a religious duty. It might be the duty of attendance. You go, I'm not, I'm not a minister or a pastor, but I'm, maybe you felt like you had to be here. And this is your duty to show up. Uh, maybe there's even a, a more noble duty like holding babies I love that we get to celebrate Haley next week. By the way, Haley's baby is not the only baby coming in this 2024 year. We're going to have a need for people holding babies. Let me just tell you that. Maybe someone's holding a baby today in a church somewhere in East Texas, and it's just their duty. I'm going to go perform this task. Maybe they held a door open for somebody. Maybe they served an off- took an offering or served a Lord's Supper or handed out a bulletin or did something, organized chairs or moved something around. Who knows what it is, but they perform their duty today and when they walk out of the doors, they'll live as if it never happened. This is the kind of thing Jesus is telling us. Your duty does not equal life in the kingdom of God. You can't have it both ways. When people claim to live in the kingdom of God, to have life with God through faith in Christ, they identify with Jesus the way Jesus tells us to live is that it's not just something we say or that we do when we come together, but it's how we live in our lives every moment. We are not supposed to walk by someone in need but there's something that has to stir in us a transformation that has to happen from the inside out where not only are we just looking for who am I responsible for what do I have to do but we become something different through Christ where we become neighbors to those around us loving others like Jesus has loved us this is the way of the kingdom of God and so Jesus gives a third example. He, following, he's following a common formula for stories like this. There are other stories in the first century of Judaism that mimic this, uh, where there are three illustrations given 
two negatives, one positive, two of them religious people, usually a priest or a Levite, followed by uh, uh, just a Jewish layperson, just a regular old Jewish person who either does the right thing or the wrong thing. There's examples of both. And so the expert in the law, as he hears Jesus telling the story, he's going, yeah, 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 okay, here we go. I know where this story is going. You know, there's a priest, a priest, a a pastor, and a, a plumber walk into a bar, like, what's next? What's the punchline, Jesus? That's And then something happens. Jesus shocks the guy because he says, while they're expecting a Jewish person to be the third person, Jesus says, a Samaritan comes along. This is the arch enemy of the Jewish people. The the point where when someone said the word Samaritan, there was a visceral gut reaction that a Jewish person would have. Like when I tell my kids we're having Brussels sprouts for dinner, they go, ugh. But we were on our way back from the Passion Conference in Atlanta and about, I don't know, 11.30 or 11.45 p.m. we stop and I find out that the other uh, van is playing a a little clean game of would you rather and and one of the students says, would you rather eat a cup of hair or drink a cup of snot? (laughs) That kind of visceral gut reaction. And so look what happens here. This is in uh, verse 31, uh, excuse me, verse 33, a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And at this point in the story, this is what the lawyer is probably doing. A visceral gut reaction. The Samaritans, oh. But when the Samaritans saw the man, he had compassion. What Jesus is doing is recognizing while, while there's hostility with the man who elicited a gut reaction from the lawyer then became the positive display of a different and godly gut reaction to the man who was half dead on the side of the road. What do I mean? He had compassion. Jesus is setting up a wordplay here. Compassion comes in the Greek from the root word Splanknon, which just sounds like kind of gut, you know, like splanknon. It's an inner churning at the deepest level that motivates you to action. This is what compassion is. So Jesus says a Samaritan, which elicits this gut reaction, but it's the wrong gut reaction. And then he says the right gut reaction is the one that the Samaritan displayed, which is compassion. Where when you see something that moves you, you can't help but get involved. This is what Jesus wants us to be. And this is what the Samaritan illustrates. Look what happens in verse 34. The Samaritan, who a Jew never would have said was good, but now we call good. We call him good because of this reason. He goes over and he bandages his wounds. Now, the man had been stripped naked. He'd been beaten half to death, left on the side of the road. And here we have a Samaritan coming along, bandaging his wounds. Well, he probably wasn't an EMT, probably didn't have a first aid kit. He's likely ripping his own clothes apart to bandage this man's wounds. Just thinking in first century terms, this is probably what would happen if this was a real story. Then it says, he pours on olive oil. The Greeks and the Romans both uh, used olive oil in the Mediterranean as a healing, uh, with its healing properties. It would make pain go away, they thought. And then pouring wine, which would have had the, the antiseptic kind of uh, uh, 
kind of reaction with the open wounds. They didn't understand all that. They just knew it helped, right? So they did this. They, they would pour on olive oil and wine. So the man pulls from his own supplies to take care of this man. And he puts him on his own animal, meaning that in the story, as they make a journey from there to the inn, which kind of functioned like the hospital, that they would have said, look, you ride, I'll walk. I'm going to hoist you up on my animal. I'm going to go the hard way, Okay. So he takes the hard way to get this man help. He brings him to an inn where he can be taken care of. He gives him, verse 35, two denarii the next day to the innkeeper uh, who would have acted kind of like the nurse in the situation. Uh, this is enough that people kind of, you know, they oscillate between which is the, the correct amount. It could have been as much as three weeks stay at this inn with care, even all the way up to two months stay. I mean, we think two sounds like small, but this was a very generous offering that this Samaritan had given on this other man's behalf. Probably a Jewish man in the story. So <clears throat> he's generous. And then he goes a step farther and tells the innkeeper, take care of him. And when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. This is a description of what life in the kingdom of God should look like. Have you been rescued by Jesus by faith? Have you recognized that you're not going to measure up, but that Jesus came to give his life as a sacrifice, to pay our debt, to give us his righteousness, so that our righteousness could our unrighteousness can be removed, paid for, wiped away, forgiven, so that now we can stand tall before God because uh, not anything we have done, but because of who Jesus is and what He has done. This is a Christianity. We don't trust in what we have done. The question, what can I do? We know it's nothing. We only depend on what Jesus has done for us. If that's you, the call of a Christ-like life to live the way Jesus wants us to live is like this Samaritan person who when we see people who are different than us, when we see people who are of different cultures or ethnicities or races of different socioeconomic statuses, people who just look bad, people who walk into a hospital room and you go, oh, I didn't think I wanted to see that. Uh, anybody, that the gut reaction is, is not, but the gut reaction is to move toward them in love. This is the kind of people Jesus calls us to be. And he says it's, this is a neighbor. This is what it means to be a neighbor. So what do we learn about neighbors from Jesus' story and how to live in the kingdom of God, or better, how the kingdom of God ought to live in and through us? Well, it's simple that neighbors love other the of uh, neighbors love others. Should be simple. It's hard to say. Neighbors love others the way God loves them. This is what a neighbor does. Remember, all this is built on love. Verse twenty-seven. We see the kind of love that we have for God is a response to the same kind of love He had for us. It's the word agape love. It's a, a specific kind of love in the New Testament, different than romantic love, different than friendly love. It's a love that is self-sacrificing. It's a love that says, "I, I don't." care what you did to me I will do this for you it's a love that says I will give all of myself so that you can have something this is the kind of love that is expressed in the compassion of the Samaritan man in the story that Jesus tells and it's the kind of love God calls us to it's a self-sacrificing love then we have this compassion this move that we, we're, we're drawn to people in need because of this love it expresses itself through compassion meaning that neighbors make the first move 
we often think that if a neighbor is someone that lives in my neighborhood, I'm the one who, this is my neighborhood, they moved in. What Jesus says is neighbors who are godly make the first move. That we don't wait for people to come to us. Compassion moves us to people. Regardless of whether they're like us or different than us or we don't like them or we hate them or whatever it is. Compassion, the love of God, moves us towards people. And then in verse 37, he says, which of these proved to be a neighbor? And the man's response was, I guess the one who showed mercy. Undeserved pardon. The Samaritan took the man's debt upon himself in the story. Mercy as a neighbor means we assume responsibility for other people. Yeah, in physical terms, we want to make sure they're fed, they're taken care of. We want to make sure that they have what they need, but also in spiritual terms, we take responsibility for someone's spiritual destiny. Are we content to walk by spiritually dead people? Or will the compassionate love of God that lives in us move us toward them? To express the love of Jesus to them, to be Jesus to them, and invite them into healing, and invite them into the payment of their debt, their sin debt, through faith in Jesus Christ. We take responsibility for others because this is what Jesus did for us. This is what he did. He made the first move toward us. We've seen this in our study of Genesis. We're going to pick up Genesis back again next week, by the way. Genesis chapter 12, so come back ready for that. We've seen this all the way through the first 12 chapters of Genesis that when man, rebellious man, chose sin for the very first time and continued to choose sin, that God didn't turn his back on them, but he continued to make the first move, relentlessly pursuing mankind who was rebellious and sinful to bless them. We've seen that all through the beginning of Genesis. We're going to continue to see it. It's the theme of Genesis. It's the theme of the whole Bible, that God pursues humanity, ultimately leading to his greatest act of pursuit when he sends his son Jesus to the earth to become a man, God and man, to live a perfect life so that he could pay the sin debt that we owed, taking our place on the cross. We should have died for our sin, but Jesus chose to die for us. This is what he did. He relentlessly pursued us. He did this through Jesus. Jesus offered himself as a sacrificial payment. He could have come as king. He could have come as judge. He could have come in any way he wanted, but he came as a servant and a savior. And in his loving move toward us, he extended us mercy, undeserved pardon. Sin had beaten us down. Sin had robbed us of the life God imagined for us. Sin had taken everything we had away from us. Yet, Jesus comes along. Culture and religion had already come along. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get up. Work harder. We knew it wasn't going to work. Every time we tried, it left us dead. It was as if they just walked by without doing anything for us. But Jesus comes along and he gives of himself, his own clothes stripped off of him. His own flesh torn apart so that he could bandage our wounds. As Isaiah 53 says, 
700 years before Jesus ever existed, Isaiah prophesied that the Savior would come, the Messiah would come, and that it would be his wounds that would heal ours. That he would pay our debt to God. That we would owe nothing. And that he would return again and fulfill his promise to those that have, he's brought into himself through faith, into his kingdom, and he would fulfill his responsibility as king and judge and ruler over all and that we would be with him as his own. This is the promise, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as he came to us like the Samaritan despised by other people, gave himself for us, putting us under his account, his name, so that any sin would be covered by his death and resurrection so that we blessed by him could be a blessing to others to be a neighbor Jesus empowers us to do that so there's two responses to the story of the good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 the first response is do you trust Jesus for salvation maybe you are like the lawyer who has been critical of Jesus But when you come to things like sermons and churches, you come with a critical spirit and you're coming to test him. And I want you to hear today that Jesus is responding to you in grace and love and kindness. And despite your critical heart, he's inviting you into a relationship with God through faith that is made complete by his grace because he gave himself for you that you might have life with him and be able to follow him in obedience and experience the life that God intended you to live for now all the way through eternity. This is what Jesus' call to you is. So repent of your critical spirit and receive God's kindness towards you in Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you are banking on your own goodness or morality or religious duty. When you come to to a point where you recognize that you do not measure up, you realize that you need Jesus. Faith in him is the only way that you'll be made righteous before God, that you can stand up in front of God on the day of eternity and know that you can be saved. Repent of your religious efforts and receive the kindness of God to you in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to respond to the gospel today. Maybe you need to respond to the idea that God wants to stir everybody in his kingdom and transform them into neighbors that love love others like God loves them. Those are the responses. So what response will you make? I want to lead you in a prayer. Haley and the team are going to come and give us a moment to respond. And I'm going to walk you through how we're going to do that after I pray. But Pray with me and don't just maybe listen, but even just start to talk to God right now about what your response might be. Would you bow your heads and let me lead us in prayer. Lord, you have made it clear to us uh, through the scripture that Jesus came to save us. I pray if someone needs to make that step today, they would have the courage to put their faith in Jesus, to see their lives transformed by you, to recognize and receive your grace for them and to learn what it looks like to live a life of faith
to live in your kingdom, which is eternal and right and good. I pray that you would give them the draw, draw their hearts to faith today and help them take that step. God, as a church, I just want to, I just want to say my prayer is that we would be a church that are neighborly, that we would stop asking the question of what do I have to do? What's the bare minimum? But we would see you transform us into people that live out your kingdom in every moment of our lives. And as you entrust us with the good news of Jesus, that we would be moved by compassion toward people who don't know you, people who are, have been beaten down and left for dead by sin and that we would join you in your effort to bring as many people to faith as possible. These are our prayers, God. Help us respond and to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.